Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe, a podcast on ideas, politics and all things European, European Liberal Forum project. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I really hope that you enjoyed the show. Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I have a great guest today to discuss a contemporary Russia and its political system. Sergei Guriev, a renowned political and economical analyst, professor of economics and provost of CMSPO, co-author with Daniel Traceman of Spin Dictators, the changing face of tyranny in the 21st century, and also a host of the podcast, Conversations with Sergei Guriev. Sergei Guriev, welcome to Liberal Europe. Thank you very much, Leszek, for inviting me. So, um, perhaps the first question would be, why, despite modernization of the economy, society, even the last decades, the Russian regime tightened and moved closer to the traditional dictatorship rather than speed dictatorship? Uh, thanks. It's a, it's a good question. And indeed, there are very few educated countries which have an open dictatorship like uh, the two days Russian dictatorship, which is a very repressive regime and increasingly closed autarkic regime and also a very brutal regime. Russia is a high income country. Uh, well, middle in, uh, high, uh, upper middle income country, which was a higher income country, will probably be a higher income country in the next uh, couple of years. Uh, so Russia, um, Russia is a reasonably developed, urbanized, educated country, and yet the regime has moved to this brutal war, a full-scale invasion of 2022, and it followed with the increased repression. And indeed, it's a puzzle, and I think this puzzle can be explained that... Um, by, by the mistake Mr. Putin made in 2022. So dictators do make mistakes for a very simple reason. They, um, they don't have enough feedback. They surround themselves with yes-men, people who only say uh, yes and uh, communicate positive feedback to the dictator. There is no civil society, political opposition. So dictators have a biased view about about the society and politics. And so Mr. Putin thought his army is strong. He thought Ukrainian army is weak. He thought Ukrainian people like him. He thought uh, the West is not uh, united and uh, there is no resolve. And that is probably uh, an implication of what's happened in Afghanistan half a year before the invasion. So uh, he had those messages and he thought that he would quickly invade Ukraine like he did in 2014, change the government in Kyiv and come back to Russia as a bloodless victor like he did in 2014. And he would remove, uh, he would remove the government in Kyiv and he would remain a spin dictator, a dictator who rules through manipulation and, and not through brutality. That didn't work. Ukraine turned out to be stronger. The West turned out to be more um, reunited than Putin thought, and Putin's own army turned out to be corrupt and weak. And so finally what happened, Putin was thinking, what can I do to stay in power? And he decided just to um, go in this direction of uh, brutal dictatorship. In the first week after the beginning of 2022 invasion, he closed down all independent media, he blocked Facebook and Instagram, and he introduced uh, military censorship. He basically said, if you have a conversation like we, Leszek and I, have today, you go to jail in Russia for 10 years or more. So the regime has changed dramatically just in a few days since the invasion because Putin th understood it's not 2014 anymore and he needs to decide something. And so he made this quick decision. So I think a lot of commentators that really like to explain the, this evolution of, of Putinism or the regime 
by psychology, sometimes psychoanalysis, that Putin was isolated in the bunker, was reading too many books of history, and so on. But I'm interested more in a, in a sort of structural answer to that. So would you, because no man governs alone, and I'm wondering how would you describe the structure of power in the Putin's Russia today? So this is the right question, and we still don't know, maybe indeed, after spending a couple of years in isolation, Putin had a change, a permanent change in uh, the functioning of his brain. Some neuroscientists say that if you don't talk enough to people, uh, neurons reconnect in a different way. So this is uh, possible. Can I really say that my answer, a structural answer that you prefer, is better? No, I can't. These are alternative explanations. So maybe Putin just started to live in an alternative psychological neuroscientific reality, or Putin got uh, information which was biased. This is also possible. And this is a structural explanation. And this is directly related to your question. So your question is, what is the governance uh, structure in Putin's regime? What is the elite? Putin has built this elite himself. He surrounded himself with those people. He recruited them in the way that nobody can stand up to him. Nobody can criticize him. Exactly because he was always afraid of people around him to create a conspiracy, to undertake a coup d'etat, to remove Putin and replace him with somebody else. And so he identified people who are weaker than he is, and he brought these people to his close circle. And these are the people who never stand up to him, and these are the people who are afraid of him, rightly so, because he does kill people whom he doesn't like. And so in that sense, we shouldn't be surprised that they help him rule, and they do his bidding. And I think uh, I would recommend um, watching this video of uh, the meeting of Russia's Security Council three days before full-scale invasion. So the invasion happens on Mon on, on sorry, invasion happens on Thursday, 24th of February, 2022. Three days before, 21st of February, they show on Russian TV, they show the part the first part of the meeting of uh, National Security Council, where you have ministers, you have head of KGB, you had uh, head of the army, you had prosecutor general, you have a head of external intelligence who come up to the microphone and Putin asked them, so what do you think about my proposal? And at that point, three days before the full-scale invasion, the audience thinks that Putin is asking them to recognize independence of Donetsk and Lugansk People Republic. On, that, on the other hand, we think now that these people already understood that Putin is proposing full-scale invasion. And you could see how scared those people were, how they understood that it's going to be a disaster. These people understood that, yes, we told Putin that you spent several billion dollars on uh, turning Ukrainian public opinion in our favor, and we stole this money. And we thought that would, you would never come to a test uh, whether Ukrainians actually will greet our tanks with flowers or not. We wouldn't think that you're so crazy. And so these people understood how catastrophic it's going to be, but they could not say that, and they were really scared. You can see that in the video. And uh, the same thing goes, uh, you spend tens of billions of dollars on rearming Russian army. We stole this money. This money is now in our, in our yachts and uh, palaces in the uh, south of France. And now it's time of reckoning, and we were not prepared for this. And we know that we'll lose our yachts in France, Italy, United States, because we understand that this is going to be a disaster. So these people are very scared, but these people are not 
able to stand up to Putin because also Putin poisons people, Putin defenestrates people. And this is something we've seen since February 2022. A lot of high-ranking business people and officials have disappeared, have fallen out of windows or committed quote-unquote suicide. Uh, I remember this this council. I think it was Narishkin who was a little bit... He went ahead of himself and said that actually Russia should uh, incorporate those republics, uh, which were supposed to be independent, and and he actually got punished and humiliated by Putin. So yeah, it was yeah it was quite a spectacle. I think it's a very rare, <laughs> uh, rare spectacle indeed. Um, well, I I am wondering because you you are of course naturally quite quite critical towards the the Russian elite right now, and for very good reason, but. For quite a long time, it seemed that despite the major corruption, that uh, the, the way that Russia is managed, it is at least of this sort of technopolitics, is, is quite efficient. Uh, I'm wondering how would you see the evolution of the of the system and the power structure before you left Russia in 2013, if I remember correctly, and, and afterwards? Because it seems that these incentives and, and this ability to analyze and adapt, I think adapta- adaptability of the Russian political system surprised a lot of people. Also, economic system after the war. I think it, it was a bit surprising, but it's a different question. So how would you describe this evolution and perhaps deterioration of, of the sort of ability of political system to adapt to circumstances? That's an excellent question. And since you mentioned our book, Spin Dictators, we talk about this exactly in the book. And um, in that book, we also talk about the instruments regimes like this use. And so Putin arrives at, uh, in his office, some people would say in 1999, when he was appointed as prime minister by Boris Yeltsin, or in 2020, when he won, uh, quote-unquote, the first presidential election. And uh, then he starts to remove, as if in a user's manual, right? And you, you can imagine there is a user's manual of spin dictators. You need to remove checks and balances. You need to suppress uh, independent media. You need to co-opt. Sometimes you need to co-opt independent media. You need to suppress or co-opt uh, judges. And we've seen that, for example, in European Union. We've seen that in Hungary. And some people would say that Polish uh, Peace and Justice Party, Peace, has also worked in that direction. And... Uh, succeeded in some of those dimensions. But Putin was a spin dictator par excellence. He was actually somebody who was very skillful, very sophisticated. But he indeed started to do that from his first day in office. He started to take over first channel of Russian TV. He took over NTV. In Russia, we also had NTV, which was an independent station in the 1990s. And so he started with the media landscape. He very quickly reduced the free debate to a number of very small uh, media outlets, which uh, you would have a uh, independent radio station, which would which would uh, reach out to several million people. You would have uh, one or two independent newspapers, uh, one or two online media, and so on and so forth. Then he took over judiciary system. Then he co-opted or subjugated uh, the business community. And this evolution was indeed to build a machine where he is he has an uncontested control over a political system, and at the same time. The public doesn't understand they don't live in a democracy anymore because uh, Putin respects con- constitution. After two terms, he steps down, he appoints Medvedev, then he comes back. Business community understands they cannot interfere in politics, cannot support opposition, but they can do business. 
And so there is, there is a number of instruments, a number of ways in which he built a very flexible system, as you rightly said, which reacted well to shocks. And yet this system has one big problem, which is because it's a centralized political system, it cannot provide incentives and tools for economic growth. And economic growth is exactly what gives him his legitimacy. His popularity in his first 10 years in, in the office was coming from the fact that economy was growing, it was growing fast, and people were quite happy. Now, this growth came from reforms in the 1990s, reforms in the beginning of his term when he still has not cleaned up all the economic scene and has not kicked out the good judges and government officials. Uh, eventually, this source of growth has disappeared. Oil prices were growing. He was lucky. So that helped, for, uh, helped economic growth in the first decade. In the second decade, oil prices were usually high, but not growing. And then, of course, he was very lucky to come to office when the economy was at a very low point. And so it started to grow. It was not Putin's, uh, uh, Putin's contribution, but uh, he was just lucky to preside over 10 years of economic growth, which he eventually destroyed uh, by uh, taking over uh, the economy, giving the chunks of economy to his friends, uh, taking over uh, businesses by the state. And so this economy became a very, very... Um, uh, uh, very much stagnating economy. It was clear, we warned about this. Uh, I remember that with uh, my co-author Alek Tsevinsky, we wrote a number of articles and, and a chapter in a book saying that the next decade will be 70-80 scenario when oil price will be $70-80 per barrel. Uh, Putin's approval rating will be 70-80%, but economy will be like 1970-1980s stagnation economy, like Brezhnevite economy. And we turned out to be exactly right. Now, the problem of Putin was that as economy stopped growing, uh, his popularity came down and he needed a boost. And so he found this boost in 2014 in annexing Crimea. And that was a typical spin dictator war. It was a war which was bloodless, uh, the war which was deniable, the war that the West didn't know how to digest, how to react to, and so that was a big, big success. And again, this is yet a, another uh, dimension of flexibility of spin dictators in the global affairs. They do things in a way where you can still shake hands with them. The initial shock was there, Putin was isolated a bit, but no major foreign company left Russia. Uh, Russian businessmen continued to travel to Davos. Putin was considered to be a bad guy, but not anything like today. So, so it continued to work until, again, uh, this uh, impact of Crimea annexation faded away and Putin faced a decline in popularity ranking, ratings. And so he reacted by poisoning Navalny, by putting him in jail, uh, by changing his constitution, and finally by invaded, invading uh, Ukraine in 2022. Well, it's it's I, I think it's as good explanation as as, as one gets, and uh, thank you for it. Um, I'm I'm wondering to what extent do you think that it is possible for Russia to abandon war? Because I remember you discussing on C CCIS, I think uh, program 
the report about ideology of, of, of Putinism, where you claim that you know until, until 2020, it's, it's hard to say about ideology because you can find a liberal Putin speech or free market or statist Putin speech and so on. But I'm wondering, do you think that maybe now the, the war became ideology in itself? And this war effort is sort of self-explanatory, this and I think it's somehow, if someone wants to analyze it in this way, it's quite deep in Russian psyche as well, that you have to um, make an effort for the uh, for the for your country. Do you think that without the well major breakthrough in the war, it is actually that Putin and this regime has an incentive to abandon war because it's clearly not concerned with the well-being of its population? Uh, that's a great question, and I think that yes, the war has become Putin's ideology. And uh, yes, as long as Putin is in office, the war will continue. Unless, of course, Ukrainians just win this war decisively, which we don't observe in 2023. And it's hard to imagine how that can happen in 2024. Uh, but if there is not, uh, there is not a uh, decisive victory by Ukrainians, if there is a, a no decisive victory by Ukrainians, uh, Putin will continue this war. The intensity of the war will depend on how much resources he has, how tight the sanctions are, but the war itself will continue. And then when Putin is gone, then the things will change. And this is related to a very simple um, observation. This war is not popular. We don't see volunteers who want to go to this war and die for the motherland. People need to be paid a lot of money to be recruited to Putin's army and go to Ukraine. We don't see excitement around Putin. I already mentioned this meeting of Security Council before the war, but um, when we see leaked conversations between Putin's uh, oligarchs, uh, we see that they are scared, disappointed, are not happy. When we look at the polls, even in official polls, you see support of Putin, but you also see lack of support for the war. And recently, the head of Russian official poll agency, Vtsyom, uh, Valery Fyodorov, has said that uh, the continuation of the war is supported by about 20% of Russian population. So once Putin is gone and the fear is removed, I think there will be a very quick start of negotiations. Now, there, there is a scenario in which Putin is succeeded by somebody around him who is even more brutal. This is not impossible. But this regime is not likely to stay long in this North Korean or Syrian version simply because Putin has selected these people not based on ideology. He selected them not based on commitment to war. He selected them for 20 years for being corrupt and loyal to Putin. Once Putin is gone, there is no need for loyalty to Putin. There is no fear that Putin kills you. These corrupt people will say, we'll negotiate, give us back our palaces and yachts and Swiss bank accounts. And also that will help them to stay in power because Putin has charisma. Putin has some genuine support from Russian people. He presided over 10 years of economic growth. People around him are selected to be faceless, people without charismas. He selected them exactly because they cannot challenge him. So there is nobody around Putin who can replace Putin as a leader. And so in that sense, people who succeed him will need another source of legitimacy. And the easiest thing to do is to uh, bring back foreign investment, to remove sanctions. And for that, they will negotiate. So I think 
the short answer to your question is yes, Putin equals war, but I hope that once Putin's gone, the war will stop as well. There is a lot of disinformation or high hopes which are unfulfilled in watching Russia, especially I think by foreign analysts who understand a little of what's really happening and because of also of, uh, well, lack of free media in Russia currently. It's, and of course, most of people in the regime cannot speak freely to the to the any Western media. Mm, I, I think there's a, a high bias of what information is available and how we should interpret it. How you as an analyst watch and interpret Russia today and what signs, what metrics, what people or institutions we should watch to see the signs of Putinism hopefully weakening? Uh, so this is a very difficult question because indeed we don't really have independent media in Russia. And of course, the job of Putin is to make sure that people who have left Russia are disconnected from Russia. Yet it's not Soviet Union. We have a lot of digital media. Even within Russia, we have social media used by Russians. And there are several ways in which you can scrape data from VK. You can uh, watch the official uh, official media, which also sometimes gives you give you data which are probably correct. You also can buy leaked data. So a lot of work is done on leaked customs data where we can look at disaggregated trade transactions and see who actually supplies uh, microprocessors uh, to Russia. So stuff like this is still is still there. Um, but I'll just give you one uh, observation. So in, in uh, recent weeks, there has been a speculation that Putin needs to announce his nomination for presidential elections in March 2024. And that was even a date, November 4, which is the day of national unity in Russia, the main official uh, holiday, which is uh, coincidentally is the day when Russians believe they kicked out Poles from the Kremlin yeah, from uh, 300 Kremlin. years yeah. ago. <laughs> Uh, it's not exactly the correct date, but who cares? <laughs> uh, so there is a there is a holiday, and everybody would expect Putin to show up in this holiday. And there was a big celebration uh, to announce his uh, candidacy for presidential election. That did not happen. And uh, this is an uh, observable that, uh, again, it's very hard to deny. It's a physical fact. And so facts like this inform you that things... Sometimes are not great. Maybe Putin is sick. Maybe he wants to achieve some victory in Ukraine first before announcing his candidacy. And so this has been delayed. So uh, things like this create um, signals uh, that you can try to interpret. But it is very hard. It's not as hard as it was in uh, Soviet times when Sovietologists would actually look in which order members of Politburo stand on the mausoleum during the military parade. You have much more information than this. You have people within the system who make leaks. Sometimes their conversations are uh, are um, uh, listened to by Ukrainians who publish those leaks. So there, there, there are things like this. And of course, a lot of uh, Russian emigrants talk to people who stay in Russia via secure messengers and so on. So there is there is a lot of communications relative to what's happened in Soviet times. Because we are coming to the close of our conversation, I wanted to ask you a bit more general question uh, regarding the, the, the future of spin dictatorships in general. 
Um, about 100 years ago, uh, Evgeny Zamyatin wrote a very interesting book called Me, We. Uh, and he described, uh, it, it was w- long before the Huxley and, and uh, Orwell, uh, when he described a sort of very comfortable dictatorship when everybody has a number, it's very logical, um, also very transparent, so everyone is voting for benefactor and is being watched voting for benefactor. And I'm curious, to what extent do you think that this sort of, well, what some people might say a prof- prophetic book, um, because of technological developments uh, unthinkable 100 years ago, which is available today, to what extent do you think that this technological investment, advancement might uh, sort of uh, describe the future of evolution of spin dictatorships? And to what extent do you think that there might be some sort of convergence between populist democracies and uh, the spin dictatorships that will be very difficult to tell for non-experts one from another? Yes, these are two excellent questions. Let me answer the second one first. The similarities and differences between populist democracies and spin dictatorships. In populist democracies, you you still have uh, free and fair elections in the sense that populists can lose the election like we just saw in Poland. Populists, many authoritarian populists want to become spin dictators. And Viktor Orban has succeeded, Donald Trump and Silvia Berlusconi have failed. Right? Donald Trump may still come back and try again. This is completely plausible. But at this moment, America remains a democracy and Italy remains a democracy. So there is a difference. So many populist leaders want to become spin dictators, but not all of them succeed. And dictatorship is where the leader controls the system. Sometimes they make mistakes and lose elections, lose power, lose uh, elections, try to steal elections and are overthrown by street protests. That happens. But their idea is not to allow free and fair political competition. So this is uh, very important. In populist democracies, they may want to do it, but not necessarily uh, manage to do it. Your first question is very interesting. We talk about China in our book. And China is not a spin dictatorship. It's a digital, brutal dictatorship. It's very open about the regime. It doesn't pretend to be a democracy. And it uses technology exactly in the way Zamyatin was describing. And yet, uh, even China is not infinitely stable. And the reason there is dictators don't manage economies well. China has done amazingly well in the last 40 years, but now you see a slowdown um, because, well, eventually regimes like this ask a question, why do we need rotation every 10 years? This is the tradition started by Deng Xiaoping, who said tradition every uh, 10 years, age limits, meritocracy within the party when we promote people who have successfully managed their part of the economy, part of the country, And then we have this system of promotion, system of rotation, which imitates democratic checks and balances. But then the question is, why would a current leader accept stepping down after 10 years if he can consolidate control? And the answer for many years, for many decades, was they're afraid of cult of personality like Mao, because if you have somebody like Mao, this is dangerous for people around Mao. And so memory of how dangerous it was protected China from a personalistic dictatorship. But this memory dissipated, faded away, and so now we have a personalistic dictatorship. Once you have a personalistic dictatorship, the dictator makes mistakes, uh, the dictator doesn't provide 
opportunities for innovation because each big business is a political threat and that's why uh, Xi Jinping cracked down on education business, on high-tech business. So economy slows down and this is normal. And so it's much harder to convince voters or citizens that things are fine. Przeworski, uh, uh, Polish, uh, well, American Polish political scientist, once said that authoritarian equilibrium, autocratic equilibrium rests on three things prosperity, fear, and lies. And uh, in Zamyatin, you kind of don't have fear. This is a feature of fear dictatorship. Spin dictator chooses money and information, prosperity and lies. And uh, if prosperity disappears, they continue lying. But as Abraham Lincoln once said, you can deceive some people all the time, you can deceive all the people for some time, but you cannot deceive all the people forever. And so this is where at some point lies uh, 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 stop having an impact. This is what happened to Putin after annexation of Crimea. It took a few years, but eventually people said, okay, Crimea is great. And we are the greatest country in the world. By why my incomes are actually below what I had in 2013. And so these things, when the fridge, as we say, the fridge defeats the TV. Uh, once you check your pockets, check your fridge, and you see that the situation is different from what propaganda says, this is the moment where the time of reckoning is coming. So I'm not very optimistic about the future of spin dictatorships, even with the technology. Uh, but yes, I'm aware that some of these regimes may become a fear dictatorships like China without prosperity, but with a very strict control using the modern technology. And this is where we all should be scared. If Chinese government knows how to use artificial intelligence well and overtakes the West in terms of artificial intelligence technologies, we should all be scared. I think it is uh, on this uh, scary note we will have to end. Um, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. I have appealed to my listeners. If you if you like this conversation, please do follow up on reading and buying the book Spin Dictators. It's, it's a fascinating, insightful, original work. And and if you are interested in the uh, sometimes quite insightful and always insightful, but sometimes very specific research questions uh, of uh, scientists from Science Po. Please also follow up on uh, conversations with Sergey Gurev. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Leszek. I would just to mention that Spin Dictators have been translated into Polish. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been all for today from me. Um, uh, please tune in in two weeks. Until, until then, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.